0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre D'Alancer. It is almost 20 years since contemporary art took a participation turn. Now, just about every museum and theatre company has an engagement or outreach department. And it is nothing short of orthodoxy that one of art's core missions is to reach out to audiences beyond art institutions. Paradoxically, it is often art institutions that mandate dysfunction. How can we reconcile reconcile the somewhat somewhat forgotten forgotten history history, and ongoing ongoing practice practice of the community arts movement with the recent rise of participatory art, social practice, or outreach and engagement? Well, Well, these are some of the questions posed posed by A Restless Art, a 2019 book, by Francois Matarasso. Francois Matarasso is a community artist, writer, and consultant, and I'm very happy that he joins me now to discuss his work. Francois, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Pierre. It's very nice to be here.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure. Francois, we normally ask authors to start by introducing them, themselves a little bit to the audience, but I have a feeling many of our listeners will already know of you and of your work partly through. I guess, a notorious paper from 1997 entitled Use of Ornament, which is one of those things that in all academic matrices has thousands of citations. I mean, it's probably difficult to find a master's thesis in cultural studies that doesn't cite your work. But I think it would be very important to maybe locate that and put that to one side before we get into talking about the book. And maybe you could start by introducing your broader interests and your work well, before and in the 20-odd 20, 20 years that have passed since the pr- publication of that paper.
2: Okay, so I, I'm a community artist, by which I mean that I continue to work and think in the line of community arts that I first encountered at the beginning of the 1980s, uh, when I, I was taken on as an apprentice community arts worker at Greenwich Mural Workshop and began to learn about the the practice and the, the theories behind it. For me, the term community artist or community arts worker, I might even prefer. It has an importance in a number of ways. First of all, I always have to explain to people that I'm not an artist. I don't make any work myself. I'm I have no Practice to use the the word that's become standard. I only work with people, and part of my thinking is that community art is not a different way of doing an existing art form, but an art form of its own. It's a it's a different form. So I worked as a community artist uh, f- up until the mid nineteen nineties when the questions that I was asking myself about the work were becoming more urgent and I had the opportunity through being introduced to a group of uh, consultants and researchers called Comedia to undertake some research into not just community arts but the, the wider context of of participation in the arts and the social impact of that which I had... I had seen in my own work and and in a work of colleagues and peers. So that research was published in 1997. Um, And I've written about it in the part of the the new book that deals with history because it's, I think, as you have indicated, it's become a, a kind of unavoidable marker on the road. Of um, participatory and community and socially engaged work, I think that it's become a it's become a marker positively, I suppose. And I'm I'm of course the 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 person least qualified to judge, but positively I think in two at least two senses. One is in establishing a series of concepts about what the social impact of participation in the arts might be. And secondly, in giving practitioners, people who work in this field, uh, a lot of tools and confidence about how to think about their work. Um, And to some extent, I think those were both things that I hoped to do. For some people, it's become a negative marker because they associate it with political ideas they don't agree with um, and ascribe to it and me intentions that I don't have. And consequently, you won't be surprised to hear me say that, I th- I think it's it has been widely misread in some quarters. And I think it's been more often cited than read.
1: That's for sure true. But I think we should, we should get to that detail later on as we untangle some of the histories that you tell in the book that pertain to the rise and then the rise and the rise and rise again of what you term participatory art. And I think it will come across very quickly to our listeners and to anyone who reads this work in particular that actually your, your intentions well, nowhere near any of the readings of use of ornament. So I think it would be good to start just by giving a brief sketch of the kind of terminology that you give in a book. And I really appreciate that you did this here, because what becomes quite apparent very quickly is that despite the rise of interest in participatory and community art over the last maybe 15, 20 years, actually a lot of the research that exists really comes from a completely different set of perspectives that the community that you represent and which you are giving voice to in your works. The definitions
2: are important, I think, to me, because this is an amorphous area. The idea of making art with people has been interpreted and imagined in many different ways, and there is a plethora of terms from socially engaged practice to applied theatre to relational aesthetics and and on and on, all of which are, I think, primarily talking to the art world and seeking to distinguish one brand of practice from another um, and almost to colonise a certain territory and associate it with a, a school of thought or a school of artists. Those All of that language has the second big problem for me, which is that nobody that I might want to be involved in a project I was working with would understand any of those terms. <laughs> um, so in the book, I had to decide what language I would use and to recognize that although I still uh, hold to the to the term community art, partly because, as I've said in the book, I think that it relates to a particular set of theories and practices that I think are important. I also recognise that there is this much bigger field, so I had to have a, a term for the much bigger field. And I settled on the term participatory art. And for that, I needed to give it a definition that was both precise but uh, large enough to embrace everything that it might include. So my definition of participatory art is, is very simple. It's the creation of art by professional and non-professional artists. And al- already that is changing the language and the terms that are often used because it's much more common to talk about artists and ordinary people or participants or regular folk or whatever somewhat often condescending term uh, the art world chooses to apply to the people that it doesn't recognize as being valid creators. I think that the only way to, to be an artist is to make art. So if you're involved in the creation of art, uh, you are an artist in the same way that if you're involved in cooking you're a cook, if you're involved in gardening you're a gardener it's a, it's not a value judgement, you may be a bad gardener or a bad cook you may be an extraordinary uh, cook it, the term applies to the action, the act in the world that is gardening or cooking or making art um, so I think that Everyone who is involved in participatory art is an artist, but there is a significant difference between a professional who brings a training, a context an education, experience, skills, and hopefully talent that they've acquired over time, and that that gives them a professional context in which to make judgments about their own work and to its relationship with a field of practice. And then non-professional artists clearly don't bring those things, but they bring other things. They bring an open mind, what um, in Buddhism is sometimes called a beginner's mind, the ability to challenge received ideas, to say, why why do we think about it like that? Why are we doing it in this way, when actually uh, there isn't a good answer, except that the professionals have been doing it like that for a long time and may have forgotten why they're doing it like that, or it may be a convenience uh, that is no longer being thought about. So that the non-professional brings an open mind, uh, fresh ideas. They also bring uh, knowledge and experience, but it's a different knowledge and experience. It's a knowledge of their situation, their life, their identity, their uh, the things that, that might be part of the resources that they are bringing into the the creation of of the work. They also often bring not just something to say, but a need to say it, because they don't take for granted that this is an opportunity they will always have. In one of the projects that that I talk about in the book, for instance, a theatre performance by the theatre company Grey Eye called This Is Not For You. Made by professional artists working with 25 disabled veterans of the armed services. And talking to some of those veterans afterwards, it was very clear that their motivation was to have the story of disabled veterans heard because they feel that it's often uh, almost an embarrassment, a political embarrassment. Uh, they wanted to be heard, and this was. A powerful way for telling that story, but they didn't want to to be artists or to make art uh, again. So that that they seized the opportunity that they they saw to make the the art that mattered most to them. So that combination of professional and non professional, when those when people work together, they make work that neither of them could make. Alone, and that therefore has forms and meanings that are new in the world because of that relationship.
1: So the other set of terms that you introduced, which is actually what I think inspires where we've got to now, is community art. And I wonder whether we could disambiguate participatory art and community art, and to do that for the purpose of thinking about the intentions which those two practices might have behind them, and what brings rise to the different manifestations.
2: So the concept of participatory art, as I've outlined it here, it is intentionally very broad. And for me, one of the examples that I I often use to as a marker of one, it's probably not the end of the spectrum, but, but towards one end of the spectrum, uh, would be the work of Spencer Tunick uh who's a photographer who has um a, a practice of taking photographs of thousands of naked people in public spaces uh he's made these projects in all over the world uh he invites people to come take off their clothes be told where to stand sit lie down, and be photographed um and it is f- Irrespective of whether you, you think the work is artistically interesting or not, the, the point is that the artist is com- in complete control of that situation. And frankly, it doesn't matter which 3,000 people turn up, so long as 3,000 of them do, because they make no contribution except by being there. So uh, the non-professional artists in that uh, sense are material for the artist to work with now i also have to recognize because i've i've read some of the uh the accounts that people have participated in his his work that some people find this profoundly moving and important and indeed some people uh willingly travel the world to be in a spencer tunic um photograph so i respect that um So I make no judgment. And it's important that the concept of participatory art, as I said before, about being a a good cook or a bad cook, you can be a good participatory artist or a bad participatory artist. And in the book, I've talked about my ideas about how we might assess artistic quality, what the criteria might be. But it's separate from the idea of a definition. Definitions are about they're not value judgments. They are about trying to identify a thing that is different to other things. Then that helps you then to recognize that thing and uh, recognize other things. So this field of participatory art is very broad. But my work I describe as community art, and it is a much narrower field, and it is a more demanding field. So the, the definition of community art that I offer in the book shares some of the characteristics of the definition of participatory art, but it adds a number of imperatives and um, strictures that I, I'll explain. So the definition is community art is the creation of art as a human right by professional and non-professional artists cooperating as equals for purposes and to standards they set together, and whose processes, products, and outcomes cannot be known in advance. So the the central idea of the creation of art by professional and non professional artists remains there, but it adds that this is a human right, picking up Article 27 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which gives us all the right to participate in the cultural life of the community and to enjoy the arts. The other three ideas are that the professionals and non-professionals are cooperating as equals, therefore clearly not the spencer Tunic model. Uh, They are doing so for purposes and to standards they set together, Again, the participants in a Spencer Tunic piece do not uh, set the standards or the purposes, and whose processes, products, and outcomes cannot be known in advance. The reason that you can't know the processes, products, and outcomes in advance if you're making community art is because if you do know those things, you are not cooperating as equals, because you have, in effect, defined the project that then other people have to fit in or take their clothes off and lie down in front of. So those three ideas were were my attempt to try to define what I thought was critical about uh, community art, about everything that I have I've tried to do in my in my working life, and they are part of why. I think use or ornament has been misunderstood because I think in my naivety twenty five years ago i i underst- i believe that people understood uh those principles um, uh I know better now, which is why I had to spell them out in that definition but let me make it a bit more concrete by giving you an example from something i've I've done recently in fact I'm still working on. I was asked to do a creative writing workshop in Boston, in Lincolnshire, uh, which was due to happen last spring. And then, of course, the lockdown happened. Um, It was uh, was commissioned by Writing East Midlands and Transported, which is a a local organization. And the intention was to uh, work with people aged over 55 and that it would lead to some kind of artwork but there was no expectation or um, uh, decision about what that might be the the work it moved on to um onto zoom uh and it started in january 2021 so i was in in france the people uh, who joined the group? Uh, there were five people who joined the group, and we met uh, on Tuesday evenings. They joined the group from different parts of different places around Boston, and I had given the project the title "Wish You Were Here," which had originally had, had originally come from the idea of a of a seaside postcard. Boston is is close to to the seaside. Resorts of Lincolnshire. The postcard is an interesting example of of perhaps the earliest form of social media. Something which is combines a text and an image, and which is semi-public and semi-private. Um, and uh, once sent, has can have consequences that were not anticipated. Um, so I went just with that idea in in mind and something to do with the wistfulness and the ambiguity of the phrase, wish you were here. And I wrote an invitation for people to, to come and join in. The first person who came, in fact, only one person came on the first um, workshop. He had come and he'd written a beautiful, very poignant poem about his ambiguous feelings about the fair in Boston. Which in the past he had often seen as a nuisance, noisy and smelly and disruptive, but now uh, felt very differently about as because it couldn't happen. And the poem he wrote was was really great, and it set the tone then for what became ten weeks of of, of writing. And I could not have anticipated. I had five uh, gifted and committed writers who brought new work to each session and who shared it willingly with each other on Zoom, although they didn't know each other, and commented on each other's work. And it was fairly clear within six or seven weeks that the artwork we had was a book. And that is what uh, we've now edited. We have, we're meeting again next week. We also have found an artist who's drawn some fantastic uh illustrations and the book will be published uh this summer uh in boston and we're hoping to do a a reading they will do a reading i won't be there none of that was anticipatable um it has come from who was there um it couldn't have been commanded by anyone in advance and uh what people make of it what value they find in it uh I'm confident they do find a lot of value in it because they've told me so, but it's entirely personal to them. So that's that's kind of what I mean. And when I say, again, a, a final point in terms of cooperating as equals, so I've edited their texts because I am a more experienced writer than them, but it has been done with the absolute commitment that if they don't like any of the suggested edits i've made they are the writer and we we will use whatever form of words they they choose so they have the right to to reject anything that i i suggest so that i think in a very small simple project is is the maybe the difference between participatory art and community
0: art
1: It's a beautiful project that you just described, and I think it illustrates quite clearly one of the keys to me of differentiating between the two approaches, which is the issue of authorship you just described as, I here's the leadership and the creative control. And I think it would be really beautiful to get to your argument about which aspects of community of participatory arts are worth learning what from. But to do that, I want us to spend a moment thinking about the kind of Intentions and frameworks with which people approach all these things, and you list broadly three three ideas that, and these are to do with cultural democratization. So that's increasing access to art, like spreading the joy of art. In in lay terms, social change with myriad definitions and myriad meanings, and also the advancement of cultural democracy.
2: The democratization of of culture has been the foundation of cultural policy in Europe since the end of the Second World War but actually it has older roots that are important and in fact since I wrote the book I I see that I missed a connection or I've only seen a connection that I should have seen uh, earlier which is that essentially the cultural the democratization of culture which is as you'd quite rightly say, the principle of extending access to the art. So uh, the the great post-war um, French theatre director, Jean Villard, behind the, the National uh, Popular Theatre, argued, as have other artists at that period, that the art should be a public service, like health, education, it should simply be there, available for people to to have. On the face of it, It's uh, an admirable ideal, um, but it makes some assumptions that I find difficult to accept, one of which is that art and culture are a fixed thing uh, and that uh, they are universal and uh, speak to everyone. The connection that I hadn't made when I wrote the book, of course, is that The democratization of culture is, in effect, a 20th century version of the 19th century civilizing mission, a mission civilisatrice, the idea that uh, the powerful Western European nations uh, gave themselves that it was their duty to civilize the rest of the world through colonialism and empire. So I I think what the democratization of culture and the civilizing mission have in common is that they are both essentially faiths. Their advocates believe in a certain form of culture, the culture that by strange coincidence is theirs, and that they, as believers, honestly and with the best intentions, feel that everybody should be converted to in the in the book in the historical part of the book i talk a bit about the 1960s which and this is partly my generation but i think it's also true still casts a great shadow over the world that we now live in because the 1960s in all kinds of way the generation that that reached adulthood in the 1960s in most of the western democratic world at the time found the idea of this faith unacceptable or at least they didn't un- they didn't accept that they should just accept it they didn't necessarily reject all of its values or ideas but they claimed the right to decide for themselves what authority it should have in their lives. One of the responses to that was the community arts movement. And politically and theoretically, the response was the invention of cultural democracy as a term. Um, and interestingly, I, uh, f- an American friend recently uh, pointed out to me, which I didn't know and need to to research more that cultural democracy as a term was being used in the united states in the 1920s so it may well uh that's something i need to to try and understand but in a european context as far as i can uh trace it it emerges in a conference of cultural ministers organized by the council of europe in norway in 1974 and when you read the proceedings of that, that conference and the preparatory papers, it's very clear that these cultural ministers are re- reacting to the shock of the cultural revolution of the 1960s. They, they, they've been, they say, we have been told that our idea of democratization is unacceptable, that there are other cultures that we have neglected and marginalized, and we need to rethink that. The difficulty with cultural democracy is that it's much harder to define than cultural democratization. It's really easy and snappy to say culture should be a public service like education. Everyone can get that idea. Every, the idea that everyone should have access to the opera, to galleries, its it sounds like a self-evident good as well as being a simple uh, notion. Cultural democracy has struggled to define itself coherently and in ways that would allow for the development of a program, it faded in the late 1980s as part of a, the rise of neoliberal uh, dominance. It has recently reappeared in cultural discourse in the last five years, uh, mostly in the English-speaking world. But I'm not convinced that. Uh, there is a very clear understanding of what it did mean or what it might mean today. I think it's often being, I don't want to say appropriated, because it's 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 unkind. People are gravitating towards it uh, with good intentions and optimism. But I think there needs to be a lot tougher thinking about what it means and what its implications are.
1: Recently, it's maybe you've already come across this text, Stephen Hadley published a monograph on um, audience development, which is just kind of a coded word for exactly what you're talking about, culture democratizations. And one of his first observations was that if culture needs to be democratized, that's by definition an acknowledgement of the fact that it is not democratic. But maybe I could ask you to go into some detail of the I have to say with, with some shame to my generation of people who are more situated in the contemporary art sphere, the community art movement is a kind of under-researched, under-described, unknown entity. But I think it would be great to have a couple of examples of things that that have not necessarily been reproduced and the current manifestations of participatory community art that you see. So maybe, maybe it would be good to find some things, things to... That we lost, that that might be worth thinking about again.
2: It's not surprising to me that the community art world is very little written about by academics or critics. Indeed, one of the reasons that I originally did the work that became Use or Ornament was not because I particularly had an intention or a wish to become a researcher, but having been working in this field for by then about 15 years i was frustrated by the complete lack of interest of researchers i i would challenge you to find any serious treatment academic treatment of community arts before the year 2000 uh, there just wasn't anything and so the work i did was a conscious acknowledgement that we would have to do it ourselves if if anything was going to be be done but of course i wasn't surprised because i have always understood um community art as being a radical a radical and political movement and in the 1960s and 70s it described itself as the community arts movement but i think that now and sometimes at the time There were people who thought that was a a political movement in the broader sense. I didn't take that view and don't take that view now. I think its radicalism and its political project was directed at the art world, not at the political world. In other words, it set out to challenge, in the same way as other forces in the 1960s, the authority of the art world... To decide what was good and what wasn't good, and I put it like that because that is the the only question that really matters in terms of of art what is worth something and what isn't worth something, and if arts councils, academies, institutions of the art world can be shown not to have a coherent analysis or way of thinking about that then it begs questions about what are they for if they can't explain and justify what's good and what isn't good and what should be paid attention to and what shouldn't then really there's no use for them because that's their only uh, thing that the rest of us could actually need from them Uh, and consequently the struggle in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, but that's when it it it, uh, it petered out uh, for wider political reasons. That struggle was exceedingly bitter, and the art world, the institution of the art world, uh, needed to protect its authority and its judgment. So when the community art world said, you have to look at this work in its own terms, uh, that was not an argument that made any sense. So for example, I th- I think the book that, that we will publish, that the Boston Writers will publish this year, I think it's a really good piece of writing. I I'm really surprised at the quality of and and the the, the connections between all the pieces. But uh, if you put it up for the Booker Prize, um and it was assessed on on the same terms as as that uh you would not put it at the top of the pile but that's to try and and judge it outside of its context and by rules that and criteria and intentions that no one involved in it chose or aspired to or had any interest in so that that remains i think for me at the heart of why. why community art is vital and radical, because that argument has not gone away. What do we mean by what's good, and who gets to decide what's good? That really matters because, as I say in the book, art is a meaning-making system. And who controls the meanings that we make out of our Experience and our existence shapes how we then act in the world and how we behave, how we imagine and construct the world, how we we work together. Uh, so that and in the book, I talk about. I open the book by talking about the normalization of participatory art because, in the forty years I've been working, participatory art, but not. I stress community art has come in from the margins, and now the Tate Gallery, uh, the every theatre and and, uh, orchestra will be uh, using participatory art, the language of participatory art, and doing participatory projects. But I think it's really important to understand that almost all of that work is doing a task of Democratising culture, it is pursuing a civilising mission under the appearance and the methods of community art.
1: This is the, the kind of crux. I mean, much has been written about the cultural politics of the UK since 1997, which just happens to be also the, the first year of the new Labour government that has brought increased funding for the arts. I think one of the many misreadings of your 1997 paper is that it sort of advocated and led to the removal of social functions of the state towards artistic community, which, of course, that idea stood in great contrast and in conflict with the gatekeeping, as we we would term it, gatekeeping aspects of of the art world. But I think we've turned it out, and you do recognise this in the book, because I still see a great element of hope in in your treatment of the last twenty years, I think we're at a point where the participatory art and all its problems, its its connection to to this kind of dem- democratizing, civilizing, is now completely at odds with some of the political and radical and, and emancipatory desires of a generation of artists that are being deployed to perform this work. So to put it very crudely, we might have had a generation of artists who were reluctantly recognizing that we're not going to become the YBAs and hit market success and were somehow being channeled into participatory art, participatory, like ameliorative social work. But now I'm beginning to sense that the artists themselves are much more interested in their own community. I think what the
2: normalization of participatory art means is not that the battle for justice equity fairness social change is over but that its terms have changed and it now has to happen in different ways on a different basis and that's where i hope that the the definitions and the concepts that i've proposed in the book will be helpful to artists it is possible to to do work honorable work in all sorts of ways including most that i have no interest in personally but that doesn't mean that the work can't be good and honorable and and valuable in terms of the people doing it what i think Matters though is that you are is that people are have an understanding of the territory in which they are working, and that that understanding helps them not mislead themselves as to what they are doing and why and what its effects are likely to be um, i remain i mean this is a this is somewhat paradoxical and i'm I'm aware that that it's all. It's maybe even a slightly absurd thing to say, given that I have spent all of my working life working in the arts, but I do not. I do not think I'm part of the art world. I don't have any interest in it. I don't belong to it. It's not where my priorities or motivations lie.
1: Well, um, I, a question that I have. Partly out of interest in my own research is that of education and then making arguments for resources which 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 are connected. You do touch on it in a book. How do you see the politics of the cultural industries as they have played themselves and how they're playing themselves out? But we've got to the point where we, we're under cert- certain stress for, for various political reasons. We're also at a moment where the arts have to be able to demonstrate the contribution to society and make some kind of positive contribution, a recovery. And what I find very, very difficult is to see that the arguments being put forward are either incredibly abstract or they are financialized. And at that point, of course, the you know in the latter, the battle is lost because I don't think we can use an economic argument towards politicians who already have the economic argument on their desk and are reading it. In a very different way: I think one
2: of the things that has always shaped my thinking about the art world and, and the arts, more generally, is that there is no reason to expect it to be, to be proof against the inequalities and injustices that exist in every other aspect. Of society. But I think that the art world sometimes forgets that. Um, It reproduces the same social structures and systems that are found everywhere. And that's also true of education. But you place this into a bigger context. I think we, it's certainly been my view since the beginning of this pandemic that it. We are living through a historic change, but it's also I mean I have thought since two thousand and eight that the the events of the financial crisis then already marked the intellectual and political bankruptcy as well as the financial bankruptcy of a of a certain system uh, and I think that everything that has happened. In Western countries since then has been the playing out of the collapse of a certain settlement and attempts of those in power to try to either prevent that collapse or to use it to their own advantage. The pandemic comes on top of that and I think anyone who believes that they can anticipate the shape of our societies, even in the very short term, is on thin ice, shall we say. Um, I I wrote a blog last year in which I floated the idea that we may have reached peak culture. Um, the The quantity and importance of culture has been growing extraordinarily through the course of my professional life one of the examples i cite in the book is is that um, in 2012 uh i think it's about 400 i think it's 451 new museums were opened in china in one year 451 new museums the there are reasons for why that has happened and i touch on them in in the book but it is possible that one of the reasons, for example, is the decline of politics, political and religious ideology as meaning making systems, which has left culture as the predominant meaning making system in wealthy uh, in the the wealthier parts of the world um, but that was never irreversible um, and populism populist politics nationalist politics may be uh creating new meaning making systems and succeeding precisely because of people's need to find meaning and to interpret their experience Um, and i can see that for lots of people um uh, a, a clear political narrative is more compelling than a piece of contemporary art if you're looking for a way of understanding your life and what's happening to it so I don't know I because I don't when I say that I don't think I'm part of the art world it's it's because I I don't believe that art is the purpose of life I think human beings are the purpose of human beings and the quality of the life that that we can have is what really matters and art can contribute to that, but so can good housing, so can good health care, so can good good occupations and and many other things. So I remember I once asked somebody I better not mention his name, but he was a significant figure in the in the British art world at the time who was making a case for um more funding for the arts. I asked him how much art was enough, and he brushed off the the question as is in, as impertinent uh, which it perhaps was but it's also an important question i mean one of the things that's extraordinary now is that as clive james wrote in uh, cultural amnesia beethoven and and uh, monet never saw all of their works together Beethoven could never hear sit and listen to all his works, even before he went deaf. the and now we can have anything anywhere, any anytime and for nothing. And I wonder what that means about that consumer culture. but the culture that I write about in the book, the culture that I care about, the the five people I was working with in Boston to make stories. About their experience of place and this strange time of lockdown and the COVID situation, that book may never have more than two or three hundred readers, but there'll be people for to whom it speaks because they also live in Boston or near Boston. They also live through those experiences. They have some connection that means that the sense making that that artwork is about contributes to their sense of sense-making. Sorry, I'm using words like sense and meaning in multiple ways. So if you've followed me this far, you're very bright. But that work, we're very far from reaching the peak of that because that is the work that people want to do for its own sake, not for a career, not for a reputation, not for money. And so, paradoxically, although I've often been accused of instrumentalizing the arts, I think I'm the person who believes in it much more than many of the people who've criticised me on those grounds.
1: Well, certainly your enthusiasm is testament to the value of this work. Um, I want us to, towards the end of a conversation, to look at a couple of examples and maybe ask, ask you for some advice. And as much as your book isn't exactly a DIY manual, you do point to some um, initiatives and practices that you think are worth bearing in mind and replicating. And one of those um, that you return time and again in the book is fun palaces. So maybe you could speak a little bit about those.
2: What made has made fun palaces so special? Fun palaces is is an idea which has become a movement uh, it was an idea to celebrate the centenary of the birth of Joan Littlewood, who was one of the totemic figures of the early um, cultural democracy and community arts movement, although I don't think that she belonged to either of them, actually. Stella Duffy suggested um, organising a fun palace, which was a an unachieved dream of Joan Littlewood to build a fun palace, which probably would have been of just a very big art centre um, with some strange things going on. But at the time, in the sixties, there were lots of places where strange things were going on. Um, the The genius of fun palaces was that Stella, who's a, a great writer um, and not uh, not an arts manager, although in setting up fun palaces. She had to become one for a while, and she's recently stepped down and handed it over to to other people. But she was an inspirational person because she could give people the idea that on the weekend that was the anniversary of Joan Littlewood's birth, which is the first weekend in October, people could organize their own fun palace and Actually, the ambiguity of what that meant was immensely empowering because Fun Palaces has become a movement that is principally about people sharing their skills, their enthusiasms, their creative knowledge with other people, entirely unpaid, unfunded, self-organized and powerfully transformative. One of the most impressive things about Fun Palaces is how much more accurately their members, their makers as they call them, the Fun Palace makers, reflect the actual demographics of society much more closely than the people who uh, attend the arts funded through public funding. The reason that I love that, and I'll go back to another another project which I, I've also mentioned in the book because it was so important to me, although it was 20 years ago, Uh it was a project called Living Heritage and it was a program that I worked on with a Belgian foundation in southeastern Europe of, in effect, doing community arts projects but without community arts workers because we were working in, in uh, places like Romania, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Bosnia, places that had in some cases recently known conflict, um, were uh, recently post-communist. There were no community arts workers to work with, and so we had to find alternative strategies. Uh, We were very clear, incidentally, uh, that the purpose of this work was the third intention of, of community arts. It was about social change. It was about empowering people. And uh, one of the the most important things that, that we did in that program was to work, to bypass the professionals. We gave grants directly to communities. Sometimes they had to form associations and open bank accounts because they didn't exist as associations already. I, don't, I think hardly anyone that we gave a grant to had ever had a grant from anyone before uh they proposed projects they they told us what they wanted to do and we supported we we set no parameters when at the beginning when people asked me what do you mean by heritage I I would come up with a really lame answer and say well it could be a museum it could be traditional culture it could be a food festival it could be art you know it's terrible after what working on the program taught me after a couple of years uh was that what mattered was that people cared about it and so when people asked me afterwards i just said when they said what do you mean by heritage i'd say heritage is whatever you care about it's the caring that matters it's because people care about something it could be traditional secular gates in hungarian romania um it could be uh Turkish wrestling in uh, Macedonia. It could be anything. It didn't matter. It's because it's important to people that they will then work on it, care about it, do all the things that make a project meaningful in their life. And I know because I'm still in touch with some of the people that I met and worked with then that some of those projects are still functioning now, 20 years later, without ever having had any more money from anyone and so my my main point what's common to both fun palaces and and living heritage is trusting people to do what they want to do not to decide what you think they should do which is the democratization of culture vision not to decide that they should like ballet but to trust them to do what they want to do and then give them the money to do it with that's what makes a difference when we we gave really small grants, and I have never forgotten uh, the president of a chitalista in Sofia. Chitalistas are a particularly Bulgarian form of cultural association, local cultural associations built around libraries. I spent half a day with them. They showed me all the things they'd done. They took me to see murals. They, they. I listened to the choir. They, they. Uh, I met the kids that that had worked. And the president of the uh, association who was uh, probably twice as old as me or getting there, um, uh, it was very humbling to see his anxiety as he asked me, have we done enough? He wanted to know whether, whether they had been trustworthy, really. That's, and I, what I learned then and through that program uh, was, of course, what uh, Seneca wrote in one of his letters to Lucilius. The best way to make somebody trustworthy is to trust them. And that's how you bring about change. You don't think you know better than them. You trust people, and they will do everything to show, to prove to themselves that they are worth being trusted.
1: Oh Well, here's another moving example of, of a beautiful practice. Thank you. So finally, I'd like to ask you about how you think individual artists can situate themselves within this kind of body of practice.
2: One one of the questions I often ask young artists um, who are working with me is, to whom do you give the power to validate your work? And it it often makes them sit up short because framing it like that, I'm trying to get them to see that by caring about what somebody thinks of your work, you're actually giving them power over you and your work. And because I genuinely don't care what the art world thinks of me, I mean, I don't care in a hostile way, I'm just not interested, Um, then I, I just don't need to think about it. And it doesn't have any, any, any power over, over what I do. I, I care immensely what the five writers in Boston think of me and what, I've, what we've done together, because they are the people I give the power to say, this has been a good project or not.
1: Well, at this point, unfortunately, our conversation was interrupted by technical difficulties, but I was thankfully able to ask Francois to tell me later about his current and future research work.
2: So I've been thinking recently about what Article 27 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually means in practice. It gives everyone the right to participate in the cultural life of the community. But that's quite a vague phrase important, though it is. For example, I imagine that in China, in Russia, in America, Governments would say, yes, we respect that right, but their understanding of what that means and the practice for citizens is likely to be very, very different. Last year I worked on something called the 2020 Rome Charter with the City of Rome and United Cities and Local Governments, a network of local government organisations. And in the context of Working on the Rome Charter, I looked at the capabilities approach developed by people like Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum. And in that, I've proposed five capabilities that define what participation in cultural life of the community might be. And they are the capabilities to discover, to enjoy, to create to share and to protect culture. And you can find out more about the details of that in the 2020 Rome Charter website. But there's still work to be done on that. But I think that I'm seeing a clearer path to how this might offer an alternative form of of policy uh, to the conventional... Uh, dichotomy between cultural democratization and cultural democracy. But I've still got oh, thinking to be done about that.
1: Well, Francois, thank you so much for your time in the conversation. Thank you. Restless Art, Why Participation Won and Why It Matters by Francois Matarazzo is published by the Kaluskal benkin Foundation, and available as an open-access download. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.